0: Hello, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today we're joined by Paul Allen Rubin. Hello, good Paul.
1: Long. How are you? Thank you very much. Very good.
0: Thanks for joining us. And we're joined by Scott Brick. Hello, Scott.
2: Hello to you both. It's great to be here. Thank you for for having us.
0: Wow. Listen to that deep, deep sonorous resonance. Yeah. Hey, you got some pipes yourself, pal, so <laughs> <both of> you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jim, why don't you tell us about Paul, and and I'll follow up and and tell our audience a little bit about Scott.
3: Excellent. Well, briefly, Paul Allen Rubin is the winner of two Grammy Awards for Best Spoken Word, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them by Al Franken, and Always Looking Up by Michael J. Fox. Paul has produced and directed multiple award-winning audiobooks and continues to teach storytelling to emerging and professional narrators in New York City and across the country. His current project, The Tragedy of Macbeth, which Paul directed for Dreamscape Audio, was released on March 18th, 2021. The play features 10 actor audiobook narrators, including some of our industry's most notable performers, including Mr. Scott Brick. I think that's my (laughs) cue, isn't it?
0: We're also joined by Scott Brick, who is an actor, writer, and award-winning audiobook narrator. Scott was hailed by Audible in 2012 as their most prolific narrator. Brick has narrated almost 900 audiobooks and was induced into the Audible Narrators. Inducted? Inducted. Did I say induced? (laughs) Yes. I am. Okay. It's good that we're talking to audiobook (laughs) professionals because we (laughs) we can get some pointers. Scott was inducted into the Audible Narrators Hall of Fame
3: in 2018. So welcome to you both. It's wonderful really, to be very here. Very happy to be here. Yeah. So all of the other projects you've worked on, Paul, have been, you know, non-Shakespearean. So what got Macbeth into your head?
1: Macbeth didn't really get into my head to the degree that that, um, I was talking uh, to uh, Dreamscape Audio, and they had said to me, you know, we're going to do Macbeth, would you like to direct it? And I said, yes. I said, if you allow me to cast the program, the, the play. Yes, I would like to direct it. And so I promptly called up the best narrators that I could think of, many of whom I know, including Scott. And that was how I came to be doing with Beth. And yes, this is the first Shakespearean play I have ever directed.
3: Wow, wow, wow. When was the last time you had actually even interfaced with Shakespeare?
1: Well, my background is as a theater director and mm. I studied theater. I've been in the theater my whole life. Now you're, at the, as we speak, a little frozen, which works for me as long as you can hear me. I
0: think I'm getting you.
1: Okay. That's how I like actually actors to work with me. Is just when I talk, they freeze. And that <laughs> always helps a lot. Scott's very good at that. It's um, funny because it's true. <laughs> so uh, I have seen multiple Shakespearean plays. I've read them. And in fact, I didn't feel particularly um, unsettled by, by that because at the end of the day, for me, there is, in a very particular way, uh, no difference between Shakespeare and um, any other play that you could think of.
0: So when I first hear audio-only production of Macbeth, I'm picturing 10 actors in a room with music stands and one choir mic in the center and reading the play from start to finish and recording it and you're done. I have a feeling that this project was a bit different from the way I imagine it.
1: <laughs> Wouldn't I have loved that? I would have. Have you heard of COVID-19?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so uh, I was uh, compelled essentially to work with all 10 actors separately each in their own home studio. So full disclosure, I did have Scott and Lady Macbeth together, each in their own home studio. But of course, all their other dialogue with everybody else had to be done wild. So So, this was
0: totally asynchronous or almost totally asynchronous recording?
1: It was, if you will, asynchronous. And, you know, it was done in that sense, like a movie Mm -hmm. out of order. In fact, the first person that I worked with was a a wonderful actor and narrator named Simon Vance. And Simon will be the first to tell you that he's almost as good as Scott. And um, (laughs) 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 Simon will shoot me now. So (laughs) Uh uh, and, uh, and so he, he was McDuff and he was the first person I worked with.
3: Well, this, this begs the question of Scott. Scott, how was it working on a theater piece where so much is of the interplay is between two characters and their dialogue yeah. and not having that?
2: I, yeah, I tell you, it was, it was definitely a challenge. It's, it's, it's certainly not the way that we've all grown accustomed to doing multi-voice recordings over the years. My first one was about 10 years ago and we had a, um, it was uh, a reading of Joan of Arc. And Ed Herman is there and, you know, Christopher DeVore is there and all these and Amy Irving was there. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is marvelous. And then, and uh, yes, we were all in the same room going through it at the same time. And then occasionally you would have scenes that would be done out of order. This was all isolated. And Paul was extremely generous with his time. We all had a table read, which was wonderful. There was 10 different tables, of course. but, But at least we got to hear what one another's takes on the character. And I thought that was vital. Uh, before any of us went down and laid down any tracks at all, we got to hear each other's approach to these characters. I got to hear Simon as Macduff and Dion as as Banquo uh, and Kata as Lady Macbeth. And I said to Paul, you know, is it possible that, because uh, oh, come on, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, they, they have so much interplay. And I said, can we do it? And... We, all three of us, uh, Paul, Cata, and I, we got on a Zoom call and we could at least hear one another, even though we were recording in separate locations, we were reading to one another. And uh, we tried to do, to do the same thing with Banquo because most of Macbeth's other scenes, when when it's not Lady Macbeth, it's he's with Banquo, until mm. things go horribly, horribly wrong. Yes. And uh, Paul was very generous. He had already worked with Dion. And, and I said, could you give me... F- 10 15 minutes like before each scene i would listen to dion's performance because you don't know how hot to come in sometimes you don't know how subtle you can be sometimes and i think it was when i heard dion uh, basically in that uh, the coming out party when he he's there in front of the court and i heard dion how close to the microphone he was and how soft he got in so close and says thou hast it all now <laughs> And I thought, oh man, this is gonna be great, you know. But knowing that he was going to be that subtle, I knew that I could adjust my performance that much. So we were all isolated, but I was able to hear a lot of it before laying down these immortal lines. And I'm I'm just so grateful. And I remember feeling so bad about keeping paul waiting well i didn't all that much paul he's a pain in the took but he was nevertheless very generous with his time
3: it makes me think about like paul for you was there a lot of back and forth with the various scenes and the actors because it seems like the first person who reads it kind of dictates the scene unless there's a back and forth and there's adjustments made
1: well i'm glad you asked that question so one of the great things about audio is yes in a play if you're doing a play on stage you have lots of rehearsal time But once the play is up, it's up. So there was a lot of back and forth. And I must say, all the the narrators were so patient with me. There were times when we did multiple, multiple takes of a line. Eight, nine, ten takes. And I think the reason, from my perspective, is the following. So, yes, there was a lot of back and forth with everybody. Everybody was so generous to me. The only person who told me to be quiet was Scott. But otherwise, <laughs> everybody was wonderful. Well, he, he wasn't Scott. He, a was, he was as generous as everybody in the, in the ensemble. And what it permitted me to do as a director with Scott and with all the other actors was the following. I had suggested that in a very particular way, um, there's no difference between Macbeth and, and, you know, Sunday in the Park. And that's in this particular way. Despite the challenges of a play like Macbeth, the language, the verse, the vocabulary that you simply don't know and have to go look up, etc. And, and in fact, this may sound sort of silly, but, you know, how do you actually say, I will thither? I mean, I I wasn't there in 1500. How did they say that? So there's a lot of challenges that way. But at the end of the day, Macbeth was filled with spilkis. There was an enormous amount of, of emotional dissonance inside of this man, inside of this character. And so when you're directing Macbeth, ultimately what you're doing as a director is trying to work with the actor to organically connect to the character's feelings and then, in turn, connect those feelings to the listener. And feelings, which is all that's actable, happy, sad, anxious, spilkous, (laughs) exist in every play for all time, forever. And Mm -hmm. so in that very particular way, that's what I, as a director, spent, I would say, the majority of my time focusing on. P.S., real quick, I did an enormous amount of work for the first couple of weeks, went through it line by line by line by line to make sure that I understood it because that's necessary. But it's one thing to see the play and say, yeah, I get it. And another thing to go line by line by line and say, do I really get this? Once that's done, then the rest is, as I suggested, getting, working with the actors to, to uh, emotionally connect. And I will say, and I mean it sincerely, what a joy and a privilege for me to work with actors like Scott and and the other people in this play who uh, do ninety five percent of the heavy lifting and allow me to be a bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that.
2: Did you just say a bit? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did. <laughs> oh, I. Truth, I've lot. always had trouble with the truth. Bit or big. <laughs> All
2: right, I think we can take that as written both.
3: Well, it's interesting because you say, you know, you say about the emotionality of the words and certainly, you know, in Shakespeare's day, it was an an oral sensation that they were going mm-hmm. for, right? They didn't have as much of the visual business that we have in our, in our theater today. So you mentioned in one of your pre-questions that the words can create a thousand pictures in the mind's eye and I, if there's anything any text that will do that is Shakespeare's texts. Mm. He's writing for that. Scott, do you find a difference in performing Shakespeare and the imagistic language that he has versus doing something like, oh, let's say Raymond Carver? <laughs> <which he laughs> right, just writes, yes. Which, which I is did a slightly ago. different form.
2: Yeah, Right. No, to be honest, although the text is heightened, I think is, is how we referred to it back when I was in college, I actually think it was instrumental in helping me get started in audiobooks. But I did... 10 years as a a traveling Shakespearean actor, we worked out of the music center here in Los Angeles and um, touring all over California. And, and I was struck by Ron Marasco. He was a graduate acting student when I was at UCLA as an undergrad. And I'll never forget watching Ron talk about, I think he was uh, doing the speech by Edmund, uh, uh, why bastard wherefore base. And I was struck by the way that he did it. He just launched into it and and he pulled out a cigarette and he just started tapping it, you know, the way that you tamp down the tobacco. He just, he tapped it just to kind of accentuate the lines. And then, you know, he lit it and I'll never forget. He puts it in his mouth and says, you know, my bastard. wherefore bays. And it was just the most conversational thing in the world. And I realized, I think that's the disconnect is that We're looking at this as archaic language, but it was, it was how they spoke at the time. And I just try to put myself in the same way that I'm, if I'm doing an Isaac Asimov book written in the thirties or forties, a Ray Bradbury piece from the 1950s, you know, these were very much of their time. You just have to change your headspace, you know, okay, this is how we talk now. And it's, it's the same emotions. It, they're just organized a little differently. And it's uh, absolutely lovely. Uh, it, I, I, I can't tell you what it felt, what it felt like getting the uh, uh, the email from Paul saying, any interest in playing Macbeth?
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah, let
2: me think about that for a nanosecond. Yeah.
1: <laughs> may, can I I underline, may I underline something Scott said? Yeah. In In less than 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had suggested that, you know, the words may be different, the, the the syntax, et cetera, but the feelings are the feelings. And so, yes, it is challenging to play Macbeth to be able to speak that language, which is in effect a little archaic for, for us. That said, the real challenge is to be able to stay connected to the feelings while speaking that archaic language. Yeah. Easier said than done. And, and so that was one of, that was a, Challenge for me, for all of us. Paul, I have a
3: question for you. You mentioned that one of the most challenging things to direct, character to direct in this
1: show was the witches. I'm curious why that was. Each of the uh, other characters, major characters, and even some of the minor characters in Macbeth, if you asked me to identify in a given scene how they were feeling, I could do it. I could identify how. Macbeth was feeling, most of the time, big-time spilkis. I get that. I could identify how Lady Macbeth was feeling and so on and so forth. If you asked me, even in the first scene, to look at the witches and you said to me, what's the feeling? What are Mm. these witches feeling? Mm. I'm not 100% sure I could clearly answer that question and would certainly be curious to hear what other people would say. And in order for me to assess what the witches are feeling, I need to give back what the text is giving me. I need to see it embedded in the subtext. Yes? If I look at the witches and I look at what the witches are saying and doing. I ask myself, okay, what's the feeling? And so here's why I asked that question. I asked it because if I can't identify the feeling, I am liable to play these witches stereotypically in in a way that sort of indicates, to use the acting parlance, what I think a witch must sound like. Mm -hmm. So I asked myself, what does a witch sound like? I asked the three women who played the witches, and I said to them, so let's not go there. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the text and see what we can see in terms of the subtext that helps us identify how these witches are feeling. And what I came up with and what they pretty much came up with, too, was the followings. What I saw was the witches primarily, if you look at their dialogue, seemed very much to be enamored with messing people up, (laughs) hurting them, making their lives really, really uncomfortable. And that seemed to turn them on. So I said to the women who played the witches, I said, see if you can translate that into a feeling how does it feel to want to just mess up somebody? It means essentially you don't like them. You may not be angry at them, but you have no no use for them. Let that palpitate inside of you. And I said, and so we may see what people say, but I don't want to do the stereotypical witch. Boil, (laughs) boil. Yeah. And so as a consequence, we didn't do that. And I got a little bit, a teeny little bit of from the witches, uh, just a little more character voice. But, But pretty much I stayed away from it. And very lastly, the reason, another reason is simply this. I would argue two things. Number one, the voice can't act. All it can do is make sound. If you essentially attempt to get the voice to act by talking like this, then by definition, what you'll get is something that indicates a feeling, but that is not organically there. Mm-hmm. And so that's was the challenge with the witches. And that's what I tried to stay away from and get them connected and rooted into a feeling so that they could then go out and do their bubble bubble boil and trouble thing.
3: That's a really great answer. I like the idea of mischief makers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well I'm going to challenge you on that, Paul. And I
0: feel comfortable doing that because I'm in no danger of of getting hired by you. Anytime <laughs> like, <ever.
1: laughs> So, <laughs> to just to let you know, I I don't feel comfortable because uh, uh, I, I, you could always press that off button. You know.
0: And uh, I, maybe challenge is not the right word, but in a situation where where, as you say, you the director don't have any clear idea of what the what the feeling needs to be that's evoked. <laughs> Is it your job to have that idea, or is it the
1: actor's job? Both. If, in fact, all that's actable is feeling, and I would argue the only thing Scott can act is the feeling. He can't act the words, he can't act the verse, and he can't act the poetry. That's what Bill does. Bill's responsible for that, not Scott. What Scott's responsible for is mining the subtext, mining the feelings inside those words. So as Scott and I and all the other actors collaborate, our job one, from my perspective, because Scott has other job ones too, but from my perspective, our collective job one is to be sure that A, we're mining the feeling, we're connecting to the feeling, and then B, giving back what the text gives us.
0: So how do you see your role as a director in that process?
1: I see my role the following way. If a given actor is narrating a line, so I'm gonna exaggerate a little bit for you. Let's say, and it's Shakespeare, and let's say the actor says, yes, we must go yet down yonder to the blah, 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 like that. What I then hear is essentially the voice presenting a line. I then will often say to the actor, great, wonderful what's the feeling how do you how do you how does or how does the character feel oh well he's happy sad etc cetera, etc cetera. once we connect to that i'll often ask the actor okay do that again but don't help me with your voice less 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 feel it but don't help me uh, but does if- that make sense to you or are you at least is, am i communicating clearly
2: yes scott Yes, my approach to it has always been, because I, I teach audiobook narration, I've been working a great deal with Pat Fraley, I've been working with him for teaching with him for 10 years now. So I always quote him. What we do is, it's a combination of techniques and truth. Although I'm completely in agreement with Paul, the voice cannot act. But there are things that we can do to our voice. A matter of fact, there are six characteristics that we could change. These are techniques that we can do. If, if somebody's described as their voice is, is rather dusty or if it's really constricted and rather gravelly, okay, fine. You know, we have to do that. But if you don't simultaneously wed it to the truth, the emotional truth of the scene, then it's uh, there's that biblical line. It's like a, 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 a clanging cymbal. Uh, it's an empty experience. If you just go with the technique and don't focus on, on the emotion behind it, then why are you wasting your
3: time, or mine, or the listeners? Where does intention come in? I mean, in acting, we talk about objectives and tactics and intention. Where does the intention come in, or does
1: it? I would ask you to just briefly explain what you mean by intention. What you want, what the okay. character's after, mm-hmm. what's the So drive I would argue here? that I would argue the following with any actor: if you talk about what you want, and you are quite right. There is no such thing as a play that is inhabited by characters that do not want anything. Macbeth is no exception. Every character wants something. We've only to listen to Lady Macbeth to really see it. Mm-hmm. But every character does. So I would argue the following. Yes, you must know what you want, but strictly speaking, if I said to you, all right, act what you want. What would you do? I would act
3: how I get how I how I go about getting what I want. So if I wanted to convince you, I might beg, I might plead, I might tickle, I might hammer away at you. All right.
1: Well, first of all, if you're looking at a script, you want to give back what the script gives you. So if if the book is telling you one thing, you have to stay there. At the end of the day, in a particular way, very reductive, you are going back down to simply saying, look, Jim, how do you feel? I know what you want, but how do you feel? Are you happy? Sad? angry, anxious. It isn't that complicated. There aren't that many feelings. That's no. why everybody sees a shrink. None <laughs> of us know how to even talk about our feelings. So once you, once you are connected to that feeling, and once you are connected to the stakes, meaning how badly do you want it, I believe that in effect, at that point, you are so connected to the subtext. And I always tell actors this, that the subtext will direct you. You do not want to direct the subtext, which is in part what Scott's talking about. If the actor has a craggy voice, if you are not connected to the feeling and letting that feeling direct you, you are in effect letting the craggy voice direct. And all you're going to then get is indication. And it's going to be phony, false, silly, amateurish, etc. Lastly, one of the things the audio that I think was just a phenomenal plus, if you will, to be able to work with audio, is Scott and all the other actors are four inches from the microphone or whatever. Mm-hmm, right. And so I often tell actors and narrators in particular, look at this intimate medium, translated less, less. Don't help me. Don't present it. Just feel it and connect yourself to it. And when you do, you will be moved and directed by the subtext, and there will be more nuance in your performance than is directable. So when I sit and listened at times to Scott and Kata and the rest of the cast, all of them, I would think to myself, "Wow, I'm going to take credit for directing that, but I couldn't direct that if my life depended uh-huh. on it."
0: So I'm going to jump in here as as the youngest member of this conversation, oh, and Garrett. by extension, you know, well, wait, in. I'm
1: only seventeen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And therefore the the, the least experienced, but probably most self-assured and say that what seems to be emerging here is is a difference in philosophy, perhaps between what Jim is talking about, the post Stanislavski objective oriented approach to actor acting and directing and, and one that is primarily concerned with, with feelings. And I would say probably that the most important thing is to use whatever technique, philosophy or verbiage allows you to help the actor eliminate barriers between what they're doing and the authentic truth as efficiently and quickly as possible so that you can get what you need in the can and move on to the
1: next thing. Well, I'm glad you said that because with audio book work and this play in particular, what you're suggesting is almost job one. Yeah. We don't have time to sit around mm-hmm. for two weeks. And so for me, yeah. one of the challenges with Scott and everybody else in there is to do the following. Give actable directions. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, if, if, especially if students are listening, if they're student directors, very often an actor will not be able to translate a direction into that which is actable. It could be their problem. It could be because the direction itself isn't actable. Mm -hmm. And so part of my challenge and part of what I've done for the last 25 years is to continue to try to train myself to give actable directions. So I'll give you an example. If I'm working with an actor, a good actor, Sometimes I will hear a line that doesn't quite sound connected to me to whatever the feeling is. And I will say to the actor, take him seriously, take her seriously and bang.
2: I remember one line in particular, I will not yield to kiss the ground at young Malcolm's feet. And Paul, he gave me that direction. What he just said, take this seriously. What does this mean? Just plant yourself in that, in that mindset, you know, are you going to admit defeat? Are you going to give up? And he's like, I need more heat. I need, I need it hotter. And I remember thinking, well, you know, I'm not reading this opposite Simon Vance and uh, you all know there's action and reaction and I'm reacting to however Simon says, then yield the coward, you know, and I don't know how hot he's been. And so I even said that to him. I was like, Paul, I feel kind of inhibited. I I want to take this line seriously, but I don't know how hot Simon gets. And Paul goes, yeah, he's pretty hot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I just screamed, you know, I will not yield to kiss the ground at young Malcolm's feet. It's probably the hottest I've ever read a line in front of a microphone in my career in mumble mumble years. But, you know, Paul gave me that freedom and that marvelous direction, that insightful direction. Take this freaking seriously. This is do or die, literally. This is the moment.
0: I love it. That's such a fantastic story.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. I tell you, I, it, audio gives you an opportunity that we don't get on stage or in front of the camera. Garrett, I think this will be a familiar scenario to you. I was on the fruit Playhouse stage at UCLA. Uh, Michael Hackett is directing me, and I had never done anything in a theater this large. And Michael says to me, Scott, you're giving me marvelous screen acting. And I didn't understand it. I was 17 years old. So to illustrate it, he said, when you're in front of a camera, and he goes and he stands six feet away from me, he says, I'm where the camera is. You're reaching me. And it's wonderful. Then he goes out into the audience, into the back row of the fruit. And he says, but I need you to reach me back here. And from that point on, I thought, oh, this is the acting paradigm. Where do i need to reach it's either six feet away or it's 60 or 600 but it was within a year or two of uh, doing audiobooks that i realized oh no there's also right here
3: yeah
2: you are literally whispering in people's ears at one point point. and if i'm playing to six feet away which i did when i first got into the industry i was playing six feet away but i needed to play six inches away and when you understand that there are subtleties that afford you opportunities the subtlety of the storytelling medium in audiobooks gives you that opportunity for subtlety, then it's a gift. Then you can hear Dion Graham say, thou hast it now, you know, and, and he doesn't need to do anything with him. I'm having so much fun
0: with this conversation that if, if we go on much further, we, we're going to miss our chance to hear the excerpt that you selected oh. to share with
3: us. Yeah, we would be remiss if we didn't take advantage of, of such an experienced audiobook voice actor and not hear him perform Shakespeare for us.
0: It is the famous speech
2: from... Yes. Scottish Play. Yes, yes, indeed. And this has always been my favorite line from Macbeth. To me, it's the... What I love about Shakespeare is that he comes back to certain issues, right? And he'll have two takes on a, on a similar idea. What I love about this particular speech is that it's a wonderful counterpoint to the famous monologue from As You Like It, All the World's a Stage and All the Men and Women Merely Players. But in that, he takes a good long time to go through the seven stages of a person's life. And in this, it's just bitter and it's hurt and it's regret and it's just sad, sad, sad. And it's it's from Act 5 when it's right before he's told that Burnham Wood has come to Dunsinane. And uh, he, he's basically saying, I have nothing to fear. I, I, I scoff at fear. And then somebody comes in and says, the queen, my lord, is dead. And he says, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Uh, it's beautiful reading. Thank um, you. Thank you. I, I just, I, I, I get emotional every time I think yeah, about that scene. Me
1: too. Though.
2: It's, um, we were talking about intention. Uh, Jim, you talked about that earlier. And, and what does the character want? I asked myself two things. What does this character need? No, the first thing I ask is what does the character want? And then I ask, what does the character need? Because they're not always the same thing. And I think something (laughs) that I've always thought was overlooked about Macbeth is he wants to rule. He wants to succeed. He wants to make his wife happy. But I think he needs to feel better about himself. There is a horror that goes on when he realizes he's capable of these things. Mm -hmm. And he just desperately needs to know that he's a better man than he is. And it's, 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 to me, it's just a, uh, it's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah, as <laughs> we see, one thing. Tough go to get wrong. out of that shame cycle once you get into yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, that line, "She should have died another time. She uh, should have died later." So, I mean, that's it's like the the entirety of Hamlet summed up in one
3: line. Uh, I mean,
2: <laughs> I think that that is such a beautiful
0: place to leave it.
1: Real quick, and if I can say in twenty five seconds or less, I, I think too that. Regardless of how anybody would assess the performance, despite all of the challenges that we had, I think the way Scott did that and what he showed us is an expression of one of the advantages that audio only has.
0: So for our listeners who would like to enjoy this production in its entirety, where would they go?
1: Well, if I was them, I would go to probably Audible and hopefully they have a uh, they're signed up with Audible and they can download uh, the program. Directly from Audible, you they could if they wanted to order the CD version. When, when they stun? do,
2: the important thing: a lot of people will only type in Macbeth. If you search under the tragedy of Macbeth, uh, you will find it much sooner. And, Thank you for uh, that. Yeah, out recently. So I think we got that in the can. Oh, boy, you guys, this was a really delightful awesome. conversation. Yeah. I had a yeah. great time oh, talking for me as to well. you. Yeah, me, yeah. Too. This me is, too. I mean, I was, I was looking forward to it, but I mean, I was like, damn, I didn't know it was going to be this yeah. fun.
0: Well, Scott Brick and Paul Allen Rubin, thank you so much for spending time talking with us today. We're so excited about this production and can't wait to check it out for ourselves.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's,
0: uh, thank you it's both. a privilege. Thank you both. I'm Garrett Vandermeer.
2: And I'm Jim Elliott.
0: And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare.
1: It's fun to work on a play where essentially every scene feels like someone's hand is on the juggler of the, character, oh, God, the characters yeah. that are in it. Yeah. I mean, the only scene that really you don't feel that is, you know, the, the drunk Johnny scene when he plays right. the drunk. Yeah, the porter, uh, well, the porter. The porter. The porter, yeah. That was just so extraordinary. In, in, in one sense, working with Scott and Kata, I can remember thinking, we took a little break or somebody was talking and I thought, oh man, this is so much fun but. Jeez, fucking, these guys ever let up? I mean, is this like—is there? Do I get a break? I mean, is <laughs> it? Uh, do, do they look at each other and say, "Oh man, you know what? The, I got the roast on, and you know, could you go get the?" Uh, <laughs> So no, of course true. I know that's not possible, and so I think for an actor, I'll, I won't speak for Scott, but certainly for me as a director, you know, this is like steroids. It's just it's it it just doesn't get yeah. any better.
2: I could not agree more. It's yeah, it's absolutely. it's like you know, look, this is his shortest play, right? Right. Yeah. And I I think that's the power of it is yeah. that it's you're running a breakneck speed. And it's like Shakespeare realized, okay, I got him up, I got my opponent on the ground, I ain't taking my foot off the back of his neck, and he's just he's just going for blood the whole time. Yeah, and the stakes are so high. The stakes are always right up here, right here for the whole freaking thing. It's extraordinary. There's a a a really gifted narrator, Alex Hyde White, and when he was starting out, he took a class with me. And Alex, he has had a, a a distinguished narration career and I had been teaching the eight ways that we create emphasis and the reason that I do this is because people see an exclamation mark and they get louder but that doesn't mean volume it just means emphasis and we have eight ways that we can emphasize things so I'm leading people through them um, uh, that's going faster or slower it's a uh, pitch higher or lower uh, pausing before pausing after and it's volume higher or lower and I was going through these and anyway I am um, Alex is, he's narrating from a biography of Truman Capote. And in it, I don't remember who the character is, but there was somebody in Capote's life that he called Big Mom. And there's a scene and Alex, Alex is in the booth, right? We got the door closed. He can't hear what anybody does or says out here. But essentially he says, um, Big Mama said, I love you, Truman. And Truman says, no, you don't, Big Mama. No, Truman, I do love you. No, Big Mama, you can't love me. Truman, why would you say that I can't love you? Because I don't deserve to be loved, big mom. And it was like every person in that room, it was like we'd all been kicked in the gut. And I said, I got on the talk back and I said, I want to ask you something. You used three of the techniques for emphasis. Did you go into that line? Were you planning on pausing before you said it and dropping your volume and dropping a pitch? And he goes, I didn't think about any of those. I said, well, what did you think about, if you don't mind? He said, I thought of all the times in my life when I felt like I didn't deserve to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you didn't hear it. But I can tell you, because I was out here, that the moment you connected to the text, everybody in this room connected to you and through you to the text as well.
1: Well, you know, if I can, Scott, and I didn't plan this, but for me, what Scott's suggesting is exactly what I am talking about when I say you have to let the subtext direct you. And I would argue that if Scott had broken that down and said, okay, I'm going to try to recreate that, it would have been basically impossible. Mm -hmm. So once when the actor is connected and when the subtext is driving him, I would have bet You know, all nine dollars that I have in the bank that, of course, he didn't plan that, because if he planned it, you would have known it. It might have worked okay, but it wouldn't have blown everybody's brains out.
2: All he did was just he married that those techniques. He did them instinctively by just focusing on the truth.
0: So Jim and I are going to start a new podcast, and it's going to be called Masterclass. And what we're going to do is we're going to surreptitiously record everything after we say "Thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare." Right, and we're, hey, man. and we're just Use going to publish it. all that. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Using. <laughs> exactly. Why not?
3: <laughs>